One minute it's there, next minute it's not. Make your mind up. Bristolians are in turmoil as the Banksy Museum in Totterdown, Banksy Mural in Totterdown gets taken down. Our local paper, the Bristol Cable, says no to the Society of Editors Awards and Kieran Catra catches up with the African Caribbean Assembly. All this and more on tonight's show. The Bristol Agenda on BCFM. Good evening and welcome. You are tuned in to the Bristol Agenda 93.2 FM, broadcasting live from a beautiful dusky evening here at the Eastern Community Centre. Thank you to Steve Satan for a great show before us. I think we can only dream of becoming such adept radio presenters that we can make a lasagna and host a radio show at the same time. It is all hands on deck here. I wouldn't say a snicker at the same time as broadcasting. It's not Steve Satan level, I'm afraid, Burton, but thank you for sharing. Uh, so as ever, you are joined by me, Priyanka Raval, the illustrious Tin Hinson, and our shiny new social media man, Rohan Roy. Now, it's a good job you're here, because before before you came along, we used to just tell people to get in contact with us via the internet. So uh, it's great to t- tell us what your more sophisticated communication strategy is now. Yeah, well, uh, thanks to the welcome. My communication strategy is... Uh simply setting up a Twitter page so you can find us at Agenda Bristol, uh, DM us, um, like us, follow us, comment, etc. And we've got we've got videos and photos and emojis and a whole host of technical things that we never dreamed of before. There's some great pictures of you coming up on the feed. Oh no. <laughs> but uh, our first story today uh, is the murder of Sarah Everard, which was already tragic because this was the needle- needless death of a 33-year-old woman, even more tragic that it happened at the hands of a policeman. And then there's the tragic irony of the fact that the vigil held in her honour in Clapham was bro- then broken up by heavy-handed policing. Uh, now, a lot of the conversation following this has been around uh, women's safety on the streets, conversations around policing, and uh, we'll get into all of that after I caught up with someone who had been to a vigil um, that happened over the weekend on College Green. So you have been at the vigils which were held at College Green over the weekend. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the atmosphere was like down there? So the first vigil was on Saturday um, and there was well over 500 people there all paying their respects to Sarah Everard, laying flowers, resting candles around a tree. And although people were there for a vigil and so it was a very solemn occasion, there was also a feeling, I think, of anger and indignance about the fact that we've been told that we weren't allowed to protest, um, that we weren't allowed to gather to, to pay our respects by the police um, when it's a serving police officer who's who's been arrested and remanded on suspicion of, of her murder. What was your motivation in attending the process? What, how were you feeling? I think it's a combination of things. I think that the murder of Sarah Everard late at night by a stranger is, is something that as as women moving about the city, especially at night time, we, we're we're acutely aware of of that risk. That's something that we've always felt in danger of. So, from what we understand, Sarah Everard was was murdered because she was a woman, um, and that so that's something that um, victimizes all women, either for the ones who are un- unlucky enough to have been targeted in that way, but also those of us whose behaviour affects more broadly. So the way we change our behaviour, when we take a longer route home, when we end up paying for a cab that we can't afford and because that we're told that otherwise we're putting ourselves in danger. And so I think it's really relatable for people um, because we've all been in that situation as, as women and, and many men will have been as well. And it's trying to draw um, awareness to, to the danger of male violence, but also standing in solidarity with one another as women and, and with men as well, to say that actually what we can do to, to change that is we, we need to change the, the circumstances of the power differences in society. And the fact that the, the accused of Sarah Everard's murder was a, was a serving police officer um, I think heightens that even more. So he was, you know, so this is someone who is actually in a position of power, material power over her. Um, and so <clears throat> we need to be organising um, and standing in solidarity with with men and women um, in order to say that this is not acceptable 
Um, we want men to listen to us. We want other women to listen to us and say they understand um, what, what we're experiencing to prevent um, to prevent this sort of thing from happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, speaking as as a woman, less as a journalist, I mean, I I think having spoken to some friends, a lot of people have been really moved about this. And also maybe a, a feeling of slight exasperation of this is such a, a continuing problem. Or, you know, as people have been saying on social media, that after the Me Too movement and there's this huge backlash and this great groundswell of solidarity among among women. I mean, do you hope that this time... That, you know, what, what is the change that you want to see out of this? Is it something specifically around the police or is it just as, as you touched on kind of more addressing the, the sexism in society? If we think about examples from feminism in the in the 70s and 80s, um, there were sort of significant gains to to our position. So, you know, I'm, I'm a single parent of two girls. The, you know, the way that we the way that we live just simply wouldn't have been possible for, for women in the 70s because being able to be sort of financially autonomous outside of the family wasn't possible. So I think that that's quite key to bear in mind is that any wins that we've been, that we've been made weren't because we convinced men to be less sexist or indeed other women to be less sexist. It's because material gains were made. Um, and I think an example over the last couple of days is the fact that the the police and crime bill having its second reading today. And actually, we're not even going to be able to protest against the police. That's something that will mean that our material circumstances are, are can't be enhanced in the same way that they um, that, that they could be. So we could be, there's a number of demands that we can be making in response to this. Um, we could be demanding, you know, safer communities and safer streets. Um, I don't think that would mean having more police there. Um, quite obviously at this point, I think it would mean better lighting. Um, I think it would mean better public transport and all of those things. That means that actually we could um, be a lot safer if we're walking the streets at night. Um, so we could be making demands such as that. Um, and we can also be this is an opportunity for us to come together, I think, in solidarity. So it's not ideas that shape the world. It's the world that shapes ideas. But but solidarity can also shape ideas as well. And I think that's really important from this. Do you think it's, it is also a cultural change that needs to go along with a material change? Or do you think it's, or do you think it's the material that comes first? So I, th- I think that we want, what we need is material changes. But I think that um, by standing solidarity with one another and listening to each other's experiences in this period, um, in, you know, which is for a lot of people a, a time of Salentian mourning as well, um, that we that we will affect ideas as well, and I think that there is, you know, and and that's that's incredibly positive if we can do that. Um, you know, if people are going to be more mindful if, when they're sort of walking down the street at night, not to scare someone, for example, those are positive. Those are positive things. But I think we need to be really clear that the that these violence against women happens because of women's position within society, and. Whilst, you know, whilst we're having conversations about privilege and things like that, then the the existing powers are are, are really satisfied in the knowledge that we're arguing amongst ourselves and we're not actually holding a massively powerful institution like the police force to account. What what do you think of the argument that some people are making that because of the way uh, the Met Police even came into existence and its kind of colonial uh, roots or its, its history and being a function to squash riots that actually... The system needs to be completely overhauled and rethought or defunded. Yeah, I mean, my my view is absolutely that the the, the police as a system they don't um, exist to um, to protect communities or protect individuals. Um, they are there to protect the state, and that's why the state gives them their power. Um, and I would want to see myself a system of, of social justice, not of criminal justice, um, which would be there to to act in in all of our interests as society rather than just the state. Um. But that was a a great interview there. Before we uh, go on to discuss it, we're just going to play a little clip of uh, the vigil uh, for Sarah Everard that happened this weekend uh, on Clapham Common um, because that has become controversial. I think that will be pertinent to our discussion in a moment. Shame on you! Shame on you! 
So we can... Um, the pictures there, I mean, uh, many of the listeners will have heard them, uh, seen them, sorry, uh, as well. But uh, to sort of put it in context, this is sort of people who are gathering uh, for a vigil and have been treated in a pretty heavy-handed way by the police. Now, that interview made clear that this is a really wide issue that affects what empowers women in our society. On the other hand, this is also a story about the police and about violence against women specifically. So the officer who's accused of Sarah Everard's murder was accused of indecent exposure just the week before. And yet at the time of the incident, he was still working as an officer. And is this, unfortunately, is something that police have form on. So a Bureau of Investigative Journalism investigation last year found that police officers and staff across the UK were reported for alleged domestic abuse almost 700 times. Um, So that's about four times per week. And they say the real figure is likely to be much higher because data was only provided by some of the UK's police forces. And then beyond the number of allegations, so this is quoting again from the article, the figures suggest that reports about alleged abuse by police are treated differently. So just... 3.9% of those allegations ended in a conviction compared with 6.2% among the general population. So there's there's obviously, Priyanka, real questions here about sort of power imbalances and you know you were asking in the in the interview there whether this is a sort of cultural issue and it's clearly that's an element to it but it, it goes beyond that as well doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what's been so interesting in in seeing how the conversation has unfolded uh, subsequently to these events. And I think one thing is exactly that, which is a shocking statistic, that is there a double standard between uh, the policing of the society and the policing of Mm. of the police themselves? And evidently there is. And why does that exist? Um, And yeah, just some serious structural concerns and then I guess this is also the intersection of other power imbalances in society for example patriarchal views uh, sexist views Mm. and when those two intersect I guess it yields some toxic results yeah I mean uh, the the retort that people often make is that yeah but when you feel unsafe you know who is the person that you call on and you call upon the police yeah, exactly. I mean, I think uh, uh, it, it comes down to where do we, what do we, what do we do with this information? Where do we go from here? And I think there are interesting, there are kind of short-term quick fixes. And I think uh, you know our interviewee who we're who we're keeping anonymous um, mentioned there, which were you know, for example, better lighting or thing mm. or, or men being more aware of how they can make women feel safer on the way home. But obviously, these are kind of sticking plasters to a much wider structural problem. And there are other su- suggestions like maybe misogyny being uh, now characterized as a hate crime, which would mean it would carry an aggravating factor if it was prose- it would be an aggravating factor if it was prosecuted in the courts. Um, yeah. Or is it more as a society how we how we view women? Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess the the danger with any of... I mean, uh, clearly there's sort of cultural things and there's um, cultural... Th- I, I suppose it's articulating a version of that prescription that, that you can actually do work with. And, like, mm. you know, clearly as men, as people, as the interviewee said... Um, you know, we need to be sort of mindful of consent. We need to be sort of teaching this in school and to our children, uh, and that affects things. But there's also, as the interviewee said, specific things like uh, the sort of material circumstances, so how secure people are. Um, you know, historically, one of the big things that's held women in abusive relationships is that they're sort of financially trapped and unable mm. to leave so so things that don't seem like they're connected like the sort of level of child benefits for instance can actually have a an impact on these sort of aspects yeah absolutely i mean there is always a cor- correlation uh between levels of violence against women and women's kind of economic empowerment i think mm. uh, but i think also 
There are so many things I think to touch on in this, and I I approach it with a bit of a, a weariness. And I know it's been it's been the discussion of of a lot of between me and a lot of uh, my female friends. It's just um, yeah. The work, I think, that often has to happen mm. after these events is very often then done by women. Right. Okay, now what do we do about this and how can we do it and why don't we build some solidarity between us and make this groundswell? And that's great. But I think maybe also what sort of needs to change is that some of that self-reflection be done by men. And obviously, mm. you know, <laughs> there is a, a huge hashtag, not all men kind of backlash. And I think, you know, that that is obvious, you know, that I, I yeah. Maybe I don't. I don't say it because I, I take that for granted because it's, it's not all men. But I think it's just that kind of self reflection should be taken on by everyone because there is a lot of talk about like teaching, mm. and I think it's also about self educating. Mm. And I think there's also something around victim blaming. You know, with a lot of uh, victim blaming and, and these incidents being taken seriously. I think it's a shocking statistic I was reading the other day that about. You know, three percent of rape complaints actually result in a charge if they're reported at all. You know, the fact that this this police officer who who went on to commit a murder, you know, had complaints against him and they weren't mm. taken seriously. It, it's 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 appalling. Mm. Like women need to be believed and mm. taken seriously. Well, and at the same time, you know, we have the passage of the so-called spy cops bill mm. that means that. You know, it would be cut and dry if he had been, you know, an undercover officer at the time of the um, that he was alleged to be involved in this. Then, you know, he'd get off scot free. He'd, just, you know, be immune from prosecution. Yeah. Um, I mean, and what about? I, I guess a lot of men listening to this will be thinking, well, you know, I've never assaulted anyone. I've, um, you know, never. Uh, participated in this kind of violence do you think there's a connection there between the kind of lower level of um you know what people have termed like rape culture and mm -hmm. uh, and and with these more sort of serious end of the spectrum i mean people have referred to it as like the bottom of the pyramid yeah yeah, absolutely. I think I think they're kind of um, analogous conversations to what happened around BLM, where a lot of people are saying, well, I'm not racist. And I think it's, uh, it's kind of a reductive and not very helpful line of argument. It's mm. more that we all exist within a racist and imbalanced framework. And so within that, we must we all of us in some way are complicit. And the idea that w what there is to analyze is just to what degree and mm. i think the same way now i think there there are patriarchal structures in the world of which we are all complicit mm. or affected or touched by and it is our responsibility to to interrogate that all I, of us I, and that's not to admit you know guilt or culpability mm. or that you're a perpetrator i guess the the only sort of pushback against that would be that isn't the a sort of danger that it all just becomes so blurred that you lose that sort of strong distinction, um, you know, and you start to sort of weaken one end of it because if you sort of say, well, everyone's a misogynist, everyone's a racist, blah, 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 it means that you, it makes it more difficult to sort of call out the people who are doing most harm. Do you Definitely, have any truck for that argument? I mean, I, I never said that everybody was a racist or everyone was a misogynist because I, I think it was the... <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the I think it's how these things... How these things are upheld in power structures that need to be examined and our place within that. And, yeah, of course it is reductive to label everyone under these terms. It's going to put people's mm. backups. It's going to make people defensive. It isn't going to yield healthy conversations. But I think it's also a case of not being too defensive against the idea that we might be complicit it, probably inadvertently mm. but in in some kind of in some kind of way or even if it's not being complicit then maybe it's you know how, how do you it, it's maybe forming solidarity like what many women are saying now about coming together and and talking about how this makes you feel as a woman which is a also important conversation yeah like maybe it's better to assume that you do have uh, some complicity or that there is something that you should examine rather than instantly mm. assume that you're free from it because you think you're free from it. Exactly.
exactly. without, without it becoming too self-flagellating, but examine. Mm. Definitely. I think something, though, just to, to end the story to keep an eye on is that there is a visual happening on College Green in Bristol as we are recording live. And at the same time, the police and crime bill is going through Parliament. And I think uh, looking at the intersection of those two issues is something that I'm sure we will continue to cover on the show. Definitely. And the, the drawing out some of those links there, because the, the same bill that is criminalising aspects of protest is also specifically targeting gypsy and traveller communities. And yeah, um, yeah it, you can sort of the sort of fight against authoritarianism <laughs> continues on many fronts. Right. We're going to play a track and then we're going to be uh, back straight into uh, the latest instalment of Kieran Catra's Demand a new normal series. That's a classic, isn't it? Um, so the next two items we've got, we've got new instalment of Demand a new normal with Kieran Catra. Uh, Kieran's well, it's introduced in the piece itself. It should be speaking to the Afrikaans Youth Assembly, uh, and then after that, we are going to be talking about Banksy. Good evening to you and welcome to our weekly Demanding New Normal session brought to you by myself, Karen Karcher, via Plan C with BCFM. A session for you and me to come together and think about what isn't working in this old normal, this everyday existence pre-COVID and pre-2020. We move on from which parts have been hurting us to what we want to do better this time around. We consider what our demand should be from the powers that be, from our communities and from ourselves. We aim to gather your demands and use them in helping us come together to formulate a better, fairer, new world. We broadcast interviews with fascinating groups and individuals who are actively engaged in demanding change, as they too refuse to go back to the way things were. Welcome, and uh, today we have the African Caribbean Assembly joining us. Specifically, we have Osai Johnson. Also, as a rather special treat, we have um, Ollie, who's going to co-host with me today. Welcome, Osai. Hey, how's um, it going? Yeah, good, really good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Not at all. So the African Caribbean Assembly, can you um, tell us a bit about it? When was it formed? What does it do? Um, yeah, I can tell you a bit about it. So the African Caribbean Assembly, or ACA for short, um, was formed around June last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was sort of in response to lots of different things. Um, so the African Connections Consortium is an organization here in Bristol um, that's been running for about four years now, since 2016. Okay. Um, and they've been working with um, Bristol City Council in a number of different ways on a number of different projects, um, but they have sort of developed and grown beyond that. Um, and they sort of tasked Cleo Lake um, with setting up a youth council to shadow an elders council that they wanted to form. Um, so ACA was sort of born out of that task. Can I just comment on that for a second? I just want to um, speak about the elders in Bristol and point out how much respect that um, the elders in Bristol have in in this city. From the murals we see on our walls, and especially as part of the sort of St Paul's riots, the the whole Windrush generation that came apart, um, they are the forefront of what Bristol stands for in terms of African heritage. Is that how you say it yeah that's um like so growing up in bristol like they when you're a child you do see the elders as like this force that just is sort of like elusive um but yeah as like as you get older and you get like become more aware of the way that things work in the city um you do see that they are very active and at the forefront of like all of the activism and all of the important movements forward for the people of Bristol and the communities of Bristol. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree with you that they, they are always there and they are the biggest um, faces for that. 
And I love that because now we're talking about a youth chapter that is um, taking knowledge and sharing knowledge and growing on that knowledge and becoming a more and more powerful entity. That's one of the largest things that um, ACA wants to sort of work on is the intergenerationality and the learning that can come from that. Because Mm -hmm. we, as uh, lots of young people, don't necessarily have all of the skills or the knowledge or the like expertise to be doing the activism that they've been doing for like 40, 50, potentially like longer. So Mm. it's just taking that learning that they've got, um, and then building on that, but also finding our own way of interpreting that. Um, yeah. So that's one of the biggest things for us. Uh, I just think that's, um, that's really powerful. And very quickly we decided like, we cannot just decide that we should be a council for like all of these people. We need to get more people on board, have an assembly mm-hmm. and have them decide on who the council should be. Like we can't represent people that we haven't spoken to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it was decided very quickly that we needed to build an assembly as opposed to a, a council. And hopefully the council would come out of that. Um, so yeah, that's how the African Caribbean Assembly was born. Do you want to tell us about some campaigns that you've worked on already? Um, Yeah, of course. So the first thing that we got involved in is the, um, well, we found out that the Rastafari Cultural Centre in St. Paul's was being, or planned to be repossessed by Bristol City Council. Right. Um, And we had some information that basically... The, um, Ras Bandeli, who's one of the elder, like an elder in the city, mm. um, he has been working and serving the community in St. Paul's for something like 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, so like since the seventies to eighties, he's been running a cultural center in loads of different buildings. But since nine, in the nineties, he's been settled in one building. Um, and that building was, ba- uh, initially was, um, leased out to the Marlon Thomas campaign after, um, a racial attack that left Marlon Thomas ve- in a vegetative state. Yeah. Um, so we basically was like, okay, this is unacceptable. We need to do something to make sure that Ras Bandeli and the Rastafari Cultural Center has a place in that building or at least somewhere in the community because he's always been there and um, just to um sorry just to put some context around that 30 40 years ago i mean bristol was quite a different place it was you know the the, the issues that we had with with race and racism the the, the class divide was, was, was bigger um and the service that was provided by by raspande is 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 not to be um minimized yeah, completely. I mean, it was a, it's a big thing to do in that time. And I read articles saying that, you know, the police wouldn't go there, but Ras Bandele would. The police wouldn't um, ship in and help, but Ras Bandele would jump into taxis and help where he could. So Yeah, and that, that's, it. that's exactly it. 40 years ago, we had literally riots up and down the country because, the, like, black people felt like they were being targeted by police. So... Mm. We're talking about a very different time to today where, Mm. like, there was so much more animosity there between police and black communities. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that fact of him being there when the police couldn't or wouldn't Mm. is like a huge thing because we haven't always had the police to support our community. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, he's always been there. He's had such a huge impact on the community. Yeah. It was very clear to us that Ras Bandeli deserved, not even deserved, but earned a place in the community to mm. serve the community in the way he always has. Um, so we, we very quickly got involved and decided we needed to raise the word amongst the rest of co- the community because not hardly anyone knew about it, let alone like the people that needed to know about it mm. to affect the change that we were hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, very quick, quickly, we started uh, raising awareness and meeting with the council to stop the process of them um, removing Raspandeli from the building mm-hmm. and repossessing it. I guess it was about here that we started working with other organizations more intimately, um, mm-hmm. l- like Plan C, um, 
And it was really just because we needed more hands on deck and more expertise that we didn't have because we are so new to this and we are youth, um, like a youth led organization. But within that, I think we learned that the, the collaborative, um, the collaborative gains that we got from that were much larger than what we could have on our own. Definitely the campaign would not have come as far as it has without that, that outside help. Um, so I think one of the things that ACA has learned is collective action is a good thing and we can use that to leverage more than what we ever could on our own. Um, and we've definitely just like, taken that forward and integrated that into how we want to work with other organizations in the future. Okay. I, I would never have double guessed if, you know, if I was a gambler, I would have never put money on, on the idea that ACA recently formed and a few members of Bristol plan C, which is okay. It's a radical left organization. Um, but one overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly European white, and, and a couple of members of the organisation Acorn, that is, mm-hmm. after all, as, as well as RCC itself, I would have never, I would have never guessed that those bodies would have gelled, come together, and from my perspective, uh, brought some of the best they can offer, and ended up with a pretty good result that was, let's say, possibly against the odds. I, I completely agree with you, but I also think that there's an awful lot to learn from it. I, I, I'm, incl- I'm inclined to say we, we, ought to, we ought to get this on paper. We ought to be able to share this story. Absolutely. The yeah. process itself is, um, is one that we should definitely learn from. But, yeah, I thank you because, honestly, it was, it's a great opportunity to know that there's o- other organisations out there doing work that so closely aligns with ours. And I think the real beautiful thing, that I extract from this conversation we've had before moving on to the questions is we're talking about um, the support and knowledge from our elders. And we've, we've touched on that quite a lot. And actually it mirrors what we're doing here, which is gaining the, the, the support and knowledge from our peers. And so every way we look at this, it's, it's, we're, we're taking back our power. We're reaching out to other organisations. We will collectively be a force to reckon with. Reckon with. I'm going to take us on to our questions. Um, the first one is, what are your transformative demands, a demand that will cause a dramatic change and help us to build a future that we want our new normal? Um. <clears throat> no pressure there, Rosa. that's a difficult one um i would i want to say our transformative demand is a recognition of our self-determination and self-governance within the systems that we inhabit Mm -hmm. just because aca's aim is to basically build an institution that self-governs african heritage people um, Mm -hmm. within the city of bristol and hopefully set out a template that other people can follow to do the same for other communities. Uh Um, So yeah, hopefully to do that and then have that recognized by the system that we currently live in. So, so we're talking about autonomous governance, aren't we? We're talking about taking control of the situation and um, not being inflicted upon by the state. So there are two questions that come out of that. One of them is why do we need this? Are we saying the current state is not, supporting us the way it should be <laughs> that's a loaded that, question by any means yeah, <laughs> that is a loaded question <laughs> i think and i think the answer is just as loaded the state has never supported us mm-hmm. um or our communities it has only ever served a handful of very privileged people mm-hmm um so yeah i think it's necessary to try and i want to um rebalance the scales in the masses favor as opposed to like just a handful of super rich people controlling everything 
Yeah. And this is when we talk about concepts such as dual power, where we have multiple um, systems or, like you say, assemblies um, in, in working um, potentially for a period of time before one can replace another. So, I mean, that was a brilliant answer to your um, transformative bonds. We want autonomy. We want some independence. We want some self-governance. Um, and and to be able to, and you want to share that. Do you want to share that as a template to other organizations? So the reaching out is, is just, it's, it's another beautiful demand. Um, and so the final question is, what are your current demands? What do you want to happen right now to make your current situation less precarious for the communities you're working with? Um, so right now we ACA are currently working on a few different things. Um, okay. so African connections, connections consortium, um, that I mentioned earlier, they have been working with Bristol city council to host, um, race and reparations debates, right. um, like a series of conversations around race and reparations in the city of Bristol. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hopefully are getting, um, councillors in the city to vote on that very soon. Okay. But they have tasked us with creating a youth led version of that to talk right. with young people in the city about that. Mm-hmm. So right now our aims and our demands are really to just increase membership of both ACA and the um, race and reparations meet because we need to basically come together and create a community to be able to leverage that collective power that we have um, because otherwise it's just like a handful of people working on something that might not pan out. Um, so yeah, our main demands are just increasing, increasing membership. That that call, the one for reparations, does not need to be limited to the African community. You will find so much support from outside of it. So thanks again to Kieran Catra there for another great episode of Demand a New Normal. She was speaking to Oli from the African Caribbean Assembly. And that actually ended up being a very good link with the story before that about Sarah Everard in terms of, you know, related concepts there in terms of policing. Um you know, that, that idea that you should have self-governance and determination and a lot of the, and, and that call for autonomous policing for African heritage communities and kind of rethinking uh, policing and their state function, who they actually serve. And it kind of reminded me of a lot of the feminist calls happening at the moment for accountable communities, which again, take the um, power away from uh, police and into the communities and and kind of caring and 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 helping each other mm. uh, and you know social justice not criminal justice as she said and I think that also that that alliance between the African Caribbean Assembly and Plan C who are uh, you know social justice and feminist organisation is is a really um, a beautiful model actually for how community cohesion can uh, work together to achieve achieve their aims. Mm. Well, yeah, and uh, since that interview was recorded a couple of weeks ago, councillors in Bristol voted in favour of an atonement and reparations plan uh, for Bristol's role in the transatlantic slave trade, which was, um, you know, one of the campaigns that was mentioned there. Because I guess, you know, all these opinions mean nothing if you don't actually have the power to... Uh, make them actually happen and so I suppose for me that's the most sort of inspiring part of it is that sort of political organising there Um, because yeah there's I mean there's lots of different dimensions that this thing operates on doesn't it where so for example we've got research from the Runnymede Trust showing vast differences in wealth and assets between households of different ethnicity so basically for every pound that a white British family has Black Caribbean households have about 20p, and black African and Bangladeshi households have approximately 10p mm. um, on average, which you can... It sort of spills out, and, you know, we, we like to think of our history as being in the past, but it's, like, it's ongoing and it's personal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, as... Um, 
as was said in in the interview before about the kind of structural conditions or may, sorry what what's important to remember about reparations that it's not just about paying money back it's about redressing harm and redressing structural inequalities and i think again to link it back to our previous story even though these are really different contexts mm. is that yeah that, that somehow policing and 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 showing how the structural injustices manifest on the on day-to-day issues like policing um yeah just kind of actually addressing them by by overturning them right see what you think of these priyanka absolutely good because i thought the banksy and Tottenham was amazing and i've been to see it at least a couple of times and now it's just totally gone which just feels like a huge loss for the whole of bristol huge loss for the world of street art yeah, it's like one minute, you know, you're just walking down the road and you know your city. Uh, and, you know, I really feel like that Banksy piece was really part of the city, you know. Uh, and then the next minute it's gone. And, you know, obviously, you know, that's sad. That's sad for people like me. That's people like, you know, sad for other people in the community. So, you know, I just think someone's got to answer for it, you know. Those are a couple of views of Tossedown residents who are sorry to see the back of the area's possibly most famous, albeit short-lived, resident. So next we're going to an interview that I recorded earlier today with Roy Zelaney, who has written a book that I'm afraid I'm under strict instructions not to mention the name of more than once for fear of attracting the ire of Ofcom. I'll play the clip. So, so this Banksy piece is a bit of public art. People were traipsing up some of the steepest hills in Bristol to go have a look at it. Do you think it's a shame that it's gone? Oh, it's definitely a shame. It was it was um, designed in situ to be at that place, that specific point of Bristol. Mm. And anywhere else is almost irrelevant. Yeah, so, I mean, it seems like the uh, the people who owned the house the sort of temptation to sort of cash in just got too much for them so your book Booger Banksy depicts a family who get one of these pieces daubed on the side of their building uh obviously people are very excited when a new painting appears but what are some of the downsides well it's it's a bit of a poison chalice getting a Banksy on the side of your house uh you instantly get people standing outside your house taking photographs um you get harassed by art dealers local press <laughs> People knocking on you. I hate getting harassed by art dealers. Every time I doodle, I've got I've got Sotheby's ringing up, pleading for me to sell. No, sorry, do go on. <laughs> it, it's a curse. It's a curse. No, but I, I I've got the idea for the book when uh, Banksy put the the Barton Hill Valentine up. Okay, and it's right up right opposite my local chippy. So I I just noticed every couple of days. Mm. The chaos that ensued around that. Well, yeah, they'd take us through that because it, it went up and then, uh, am I right in saying it was vandalised or what, what happened next? Well, it, it kind of went It went up. Um, the obviously crowds appeared. Um, it got vandalised. Uh, the the painting element got covered up uh, by a wooden frame. Mm. Uh, the, it was kind of like a starburst of, of Valentine kind of um, flowers. Mm. That's covered up with a clear frame now. Yeah. And uh, it's it's clear that no one quite knows what to do with it. You know, a year on, right? There's, uh, the, the the people in the uh, that live in the house don't own the house, so they're getting hassled all the time. The owners want to do something with it. The council aren't keen on moving it. But yeah, I guess it's quite a big sort of liability for the council or or for whoever is sort of responsible for it because it's you know potentially something that's worth a lot of money, uh, and they've got some sort of responsibility to look after it. Well, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's been talk of various councils putting preservation orders on them so that uh, they can't be sold on. I think that's why um, Achu up at uh, Totterdown and the Nottingham one got sold quite quickly. Right. Oh, so the, your sort of theory is they tried to nip in there before the preservation order got put on. Um, so this picture's been transferred to an auction house in Amsterdam, I believe. How much might it go for? What's the sort of... What's the sort of range? The, the 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 last couple that have sold that have been taken off walls. It was the uh, season's greetings from the garage in Port Talbot, mm. and um, or oh, what's the the Nottingham one about about the bicycle? They both went for what was called six figure fees. Right. Uh, there was a fellow called John Brandler, um, an art dealer from uh, Essex, bought them. Um, he wanted to display them. Um, 
apparently got offered. He got he got asked if he wanted to buy this one, uh, the Totter Down one. Yeah, but he he preferred it stayed in in situation. Um, but you you're, you're look. I think he, he the, the, the rumor is he paid about six hundred thousand each time. For wow. Him. So, but it could. Yeah, uh, it's 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 unclear. It's at some point within six figures. So I mean, how does the top end of the art world work then? Like, why is it that a Banksy piece is so much more valuable than other artists' work? I, I think there's. Um, Art dealing, art dealing goes in in um, fashions. Mm. I think that uh, Banksy is particularly fashionable right now. There's a certain amount of cachet to having something that's like a renegade bit of street art that you actually own, right? Um, more so than a piece of gallery art. Um, although Banksy's most expensive uh, pieces have always been gallery art, uh, framed art. So. Mm. Um, although he and also he never he never entirely um, confirms that street art is his mm. kind of hints and his people suggest that it is but it's never signed mm. and so there's this kind of um you know is it isn't it kind of a concern yeah and i mean has the fact that it's so valuable sort of spoil it a little bit i mean can it really be this radical um protest type thing if at the same time it's worth millions of pounds and the only people who can afford it are art dealers and other well rich people well that, that that is that's the whole dichotomy of art and what is art and who is it for obviously street art is supposed to be for everyone yeah but yeah these the, the, these these people with big big pockets obviously want a bit of that cachet themselves grand uh so final question for you roy uh who is banksy oh i know uh anyone of a certain age of bristol knows as it is but it's not important it's it's kind of like knowing who the Stig is in uh, Top Gear. <laughs> it, it doesn't it doesn't make your life any better. And if you if you found out, you'd just go, oh. So if you see somebody with a motorbike helmet and a graffiti can, then uh, then you know what's happened. Uh, so Bugger Banksy, uh, where can people get hold of your novel, Roy? And w- what's it like? Uh, it's great. Thanks. <laughs> It's a um, serious bit of art history, is it? It's pretty. Is it pretty dry and heavy going? Well, no, it's kind of a cross between uh, Tony Hancock's The Rebel and Twin Town. It's kind of set in uh, the Welsh Valleys. Um, two two Welsh lads have a Banksy paint on the side of their uh, barn, but they just happen to be growing an enormous amount of weapons grade skunk in that barn. Oh yeah. So it, it's the it's the uh, complications that arise for having something very famous on the side of your shed. Well, say no more and otherwise we'll have Ofcom come in for our servers again. Uh, Roy, great to speak to you. Thanks very much. Cheers, mate. So, Tim, you don't know who Banksy is? No. I'm, uh, You're a man of over a certain age. <laughs> I resent all the implications there. <laughs> There's several... This is a very serious topic. I didn't know that Sotheby's was always after you every time you did a doodle either. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. God, it's a hard life. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't encouraged enough in uh, in art at school. So have you have you been to see the Banksy in Tottenham? Um, no, I haven't. Well, you've missed your chance now. Yeah, you done. <laughs> too, too late. Yeah. I mean, it, it is. you can see the dilemma that these people were put in because... You know, it's a bit of public art. It's for everyone, but then, on the other hand, they got a serious payday if they if they remove it, and that's what they've done. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Street art belongs to the street, right? Maybe. Mm. Uh... I mean, the whole world of art is just weird. I was reading about a JPEG, you know, like a. An, an yeah, image, no, I don't know. <laughs> a, a digital image that just exists on the computer ah. that was sold for $69 million the other week. No. Rohan Why? wants to speak. Rohan, you're, <laughs> I'm just, have, you, I'm have you ever traded in art world? Are you sure you got this right, Tim? 100%. A JPEG. A, a JPEG. It was a, uh, an NFT JPEG, uh, which is a type of JPEG that's like attached to a blockchain. Um, and... So yeah. It can only be so. So that's so then it's producing its own scarcity. So it, it can't be. You can't get another JPEG of that, presumably. Well, exactly. I think this kind of illustrates what one of the things that the art world is all about is that um, you know it's it's not so much the um, 
having something nice to look at, it's a commodity, isn't it? And that's what people are investing in. Yeah, I mean, I think even more than that, it's a, it's a, it's a non-taxable income. So the whole the art world has done a deal with the financial world, which is to say, we'll produce <laughs> weird crap modern art, and uh, you'll get tax-free, and we'll get paid loads. Well, that's it, because it's a way that you can reduce your income tax bill, is you donate, if you have a painting that you own, and then you get it valued as, like, £10 million, and then you say, okay, I'm donating this to Bristol Museum, then for that year, you can write in a tax loss of minus £10 million and avoid a load of income tax next year. I don't know... um, is that of interest to you, Priyanka? You can cut down on some of your outgoings there. Offload a few of them Picassos. <laughs> Finally, I've been looking for a way to do that. Mm-hmm. Hanging around. Um, we, we're nearly running out of time on today's show, but uh, seeing as you're here, Priyanka, I thought we could just... Um, <laughs> here every week, dude. That's true. <laughs> but we, we should definitely take advantage of you um, to ask you about... Uh, what's happening with the Bristol Cable and the Society of Editors Um, because in the wake of the Meghan Markle interview last week the Society of Editors issued this statement that said the British press is not racist at all Um, Mm. how did people take to that? Well so the the Bristol Cable and the Bureau of Investigative Journalists uh, uh, of the the Bureau of Investigative Journalism were the two organisations who, after that comment was made, decided to withdraw their submissions to the awards. And uh, I actually think this was a great decision on behalf of the Bristol Cable, who obviously um, I work for. And I think it's just the insinuation of that of that comment i think is is really quite ridiculous especially when you look on you know there was that buzzfeed article comparing 20 headlines between uh what had been reported about uh kate and what had been reported about megan and mm. the discrepancy between them the very same actions like eating an avocado was so derogatory when it came to being megan and not with kate so i think the fact that it was off the back of this interview mm. which was so clearly pointed to a lot of flaws in the british press and, no, and 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 yeah, as you say, it's not just Meghan Markle, is it? It's no, more like it's the wider treatment of asylum seekers and black and brown people generally. I mean, I I, it, I feel like I should question you a bit more on this, but I, I, how do people even defend that? Ha- I have yeah, really, it, it is uh, crazy. The tabloid press have a lot, a lot to answer for, but. We are running out of time, I'm afraid. So maybe we can continue this discussion another time. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you, Rohan, uh, who will remind us all to tweet in, I'm sure. Yeah, follow us at, uh, at Agenda Bristol. Tweet us. DMs open. Message me personally. No, <laughs> don't do that. So that's Agenda Bristol. At. There has to be an at. At Agenda Bristol. We'll You've got pen and paper, thing. everyone. Write this down. <laughs> <laughs> Point your... Amstrad emailers towards <laughs> the Bristol agenda. Uh, yeah, Bristol Music Show coming up next. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. BCFM is an award winning community radio station for Bristol, bringing you national news on the hour. Live. Nice. <laughs>